turn to Psalm, uh, turn into to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Psalm 139. Uh, the title of my message is The Sanctity of Unborn Human Life. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let's pray. God, your word is true. Open our eyes to see the wonderful things that you have done in us as our creator God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before I go any further, as Tim mentioned, this is a message on the sanctity of unborn human life. So I just want to be upfront that this is a message on the difficult topic of abortion. Some of you might be wondering, why don't we talk about this important issue more often? Some of you might be thinking, well, why do we talk about it so much? Because there's so much cultural confusion on this topic of abortion. We, as pastors, felt that it was important for us on a regular basis to look into God's Word for clarity, to look to Scripture to see what God has to say. Abortion is not a political issue, but a moral and a spiritual issue. And before I go any further, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying those who have had an abortion are any worse sinners than anybody else in this room. At a, at a basic fundamental level, we are all fallen image bearers, sinners in need of God's grace, desperately in need of His forgiveness, whether you've had an abortion or not. As you might have heard me say before, a church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. So if you had a abortion, I just want you to hear that up front, that we are all in the same boat. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And also, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that life outside the womb is not important. For us to be uh, truly and consistently pro-life, we need to care about all life, from conception all the way to natural death. For us to be truly pro-life, we have to be against oppression in all its forms, whether it's life within the womb or outside the womb. That's why we're against racial injustice. We're against human trafficking. And yet today, we're going to take a moment uh, to, to, to shine a spotlight on a form of oppression that is accepted, even celebrated in our culture today, and perpetuated on a large scale. I'm going to begin with this, a story with a young lady uh, sharing her abortion experience. She writes, I had an abortion three weeks before I was due to start university, and I simultaneously regret and don't regret the decision. It's sometimes hard to think of what my four-year-old child would be like now. Emotionally, I wasn't ready for a baby. Financially, I wasn't ready for a baby. Selfishly, I wasn't ready for a baby. I was 20 with my life ahead of me. Yes, a baby would have interrupted my career plans. On top of that, I couldn't bring a baby into this world without knowing how I was going to feed it, clothe it, love it, and nurture it. 
I grew up with six siblings and a single mom who tried her best, but we struggled. I've grown into a person I never imagined I could because that decision was the hardest one I'll ever have to make. We as a society have mixed feelings about abortion. Most of the people in this country believe that abortion should be allowed in all or most circumstances. So if you believe that abortion is wrong, you're actually a minority in this country. You're actually taking a politically incorrect view. But society is confused because many people in this society who might think that abortion is wrong, they think it should still be legal. But that's like saying, well, I believe murder is wrong, but it's just your choice if you want to go murder somebody. And we live in this arena of legal schizophrenia. Uh, there are laws, for instance, in this country that protect the life of the unborn child. A pregnant woman who uses drugs can actually be found guilty of delivering a controlled substance to a minor. There are laws that make it a crime to harm the baby in the womb. Randy Alcorn writes, how, how ironic that the same woman who's persecuted, prosecuted, and jailed for endangering her child is perfectly free to hire a doctor to abort that same child. In America today, it's illegal to harm your preborn child, but it's perfectly legal to kill her. So which is it? Is this baby in the womb a human being, a full member of the human race with a right to life? Or is she product of conception, part of a woman's body, just like an appendix or tonsils? If we look to the culture, we will be confused. That's why we must turn to the Word of God. Because it doesn't matter so much what we think or what society thinks, what politicians in Washington, D.C. thinks, what the Supreme Court thinks. It matters primarily and ultimately what God's Word says. So before we dive further into our passage, I want us to get a bit of a context, a bit of context for Psalm 139. The first six verses of this psalm Reveal to us a God who is the Lord all-knowing. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Imagine what kind of, think about what kind of God this is. He knows when we sit down, when we rise up. He knows all of our ways. He knows all the words we'll ever speak, even before any of them are spoken. And this God isn't just the Lord all-knowing. He is the Lord always present. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave... You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So we see that no matter where we might go, whether it's in heaven, God is there. Whether it's in the grave, God is there. Whether it's as high as the sky or as low as the depths of the sea, God is always there. And if you're not a Christian here, Thank you for taking time uh, to be with us this afternoon. We're so grateful for your presence here. I want to ask you a question. What do you think of God? If God really is this all-knowing, always-present deity, that should be terrifying to you. 
Look at verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. That means none of us can hide because the darkness is as light and the night is as day to this God. And thankfully, things don't end here. If, so stay with me because good news is coming. But the bad news is that we live in this broken world. And it's broken because it's filled with broken people like you and me. And the, the bad news is that God will hold us accountable for how we've broken His good world, His good creation. His word says nothing is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. If you're a Christian here today, if you're, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, this God isn't a God of terror, but he's, He is your strong and loving Father who will never leave you and never forsake you. But He is God, the Lord all-knowing, the Lord always present, and also the Lord of all time. Now let's look at the passage that was read at the beginning here, verses 13 through 16. Let's look at 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Scripture teaches us that life begins at conception. When the 23 chromosomes, the DNA of the father, combined with the 23 chromosomes, the DNA of the mother, a new human being is created right at that moment. A new distinct image bearer of God, a new member of the human race with her own DNA, with her own, and her own DNA that determines her gender, the color of her eyes, skin and hair, her own blood type. Uh, her DNA will determine her appearance, her personality, and her health. And as this baby is being formed in the womb, uh, she's got this unique genetic code so that every single cell in her body is different and distinct from every other single cell in her mother's body. So from that moment of conception, She's a new image bearer of God. She might be a much smaller and underdeveloped member of the human race, but yet a full member of the human race. David writes in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some people might refer to the unborn child as products of conception or a fetus, somehow suggesting that the unborn child is less than fully human. But products of conception don't have a sin nature. Only human beings have a sin nature. Some might deny the obvious and say, well, it's, it's just a fetus. It's, not, it's just a part of a woman's body. And they might think, well, you know, abortion is just like removing your appendix or tonsils. But science confirms what we already know, that this isn't just a part of the body. It's a full human being being carried by her mother. Randy Alcorn again writes in a way that's so helpful. People argue with a straight face that a woman's body is the only body involved in a pregnancy. But if that is true, then consider the body parts this woman must have. Two noses, four legs, 
two different sets of fingerprints, two brains, and half the time she must also have male genitals. If it is impossible for a woman to have male genitals, then the boy she is carrying cannot be part of her body. So follow the logic that Randy Alcorn lays out for us. He says, because there's two different bodies, two different sets of DNA, two brains, two hearts, two different sets of fingerprints, there, can, there must be two separate and distinct human beings. And because God creates every human being from the moment of conception, destruction of that human life, destroying that human life is murder. So David, as he goes in, as we look at verse 13, David reflects on God's awesome and creative power of creating life in the womb. Let's look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In this phrase, form my inward parts. This word form means created. It refers directly to the creative power of Almighty God in bringing new human beings into existence. And this phrase, inward parts, comes from the Hebrew word kidneys, which can be translated entire body. So we can really read verse 14 as, for you, for you referring to God, created my entire body. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And the implications are massive. This demonstrates so clearly that God is the creator of all things, creator of life, and that this unborn child carried in the mother's womb is not the mother's life, it's not the father's life, not society's life, but God's life. Dr. Horatio Robinson Strohr writes, Physicians have now arrived at the unanimous opinion that the fetus in utero is alive from the very moment of conception. To extinguish the first spark of life is a crime of the same nature, against, both against our maker and society, as to destroy an infant, a child, or a man. The willful killing of a human being at any stage of its existence is murder. Dr. Storer was a pioneer gynecologist and anti-abortion crusader. But get this, he wrote this in the year 1868 about that. 1868. In fact, at that time, the American Medical Association, yes, the AMA, actually led a crusade against abortion during the 19th century based on what science had shown about the human being. In fact, all embryonic textbooks are in full agreement that life begins at the union of sperm and egg, and we've all known this since the mid-1800s. And in fact, this country outlawed abortion at that time because of medical science and the crusade of doctors, actually crusade of medical doctors to get the laws changed. Yet even as this country made strides towards removing forms of oppression, there were still glaring blind spots. The Civil War happened in the 19th century, right around this time. And most of this nation viewed African-Americans as less than human, as three-fifths human, as objects to be owned, bought, sold, and traded. So as pro-lifers against oppression, we are against all forms of oppression, not just life inside the womb, but outside the womb. And sadly, even though this country has made progress in the area of civil rights, though we have certainly a long way to go, this country has systematically denied civil rights for the unborn. 
we've actually gone backwards in the area of civil rights for the unborn, even as modern science continues to move forward. So if we fast forward 150 years, we as a society know so much more. And that means we as a society are so much more responsible before God. We can know and see things in the womb that doctors 150 years ago could only dream about. And here's three numbers that can just help you remember early developmental milestones uh, for an unborn child. The numbers three, six, and nine. Three, six, nine. At three weeks, the unborn child actually has a heart that's pumping blood throughout her body. The heart is only the size of a poppy seed, and you can't even hear it, but it's there. At six weeks, the teeth are already forming. The stubs are there. You can't see them, but they're there. And at nine weeks, all organ systems are already present. So that means kidneys, liver, lungs. So three, six, nine, heart, teeth, organs. I'm going to take a moment to show a video of what an unborn child looks like at six weeks after conception. that beating heart, the hand, the face, the eye. Rank, Alcorn points out the scientific fact, that it's a scientific fact that every surgical abortion stops a beating heart and stops measurable brain waves. Because God has created every single human being from the moment of conception. Abortion is murder. And I want to be careful here and just acknowledge that there, there are different degrees of guilt. There is a huge difference between an abortion doctor who performs abortion after abortion, killing babies after babies, and a woman who is facing a situation of unplanned pregnancy and feels like she has no other choice. She might feel like she's trapped or boxed in a corner, or maybe she's even pressured by family members to have an abortion. And I don't want to lump everyone in the same category. And I want to acknowledge that there, there are differences when it comes to to, to abortion. And yet, as, as Christians, as Christians, or even as non-believers, we are called to respect what God has made. Image bearers that He has created. And not only that, but to, but to worship Him. In fact, when we see creation, that should lead us to worship the Creator. But let's look at verse 14, where, where David he looks at what God is forming in the womb. And this is, this is what he says. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David is led to praise God, to worship God, because he is fearfully and wonderfully made. He is being created as an image bearer of God. And that's his response to verse 13, where God is forming, he is knitting, he is creating a new human being. And worship is the right response anyone should have when we open our eyes and see creation, when we look at the heavens, the moon, the stars, the sun, and of course, humanity crowned with glory and honor. Our response should be, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we worship him because the crown of creation isn't plants or animals. It isn't, anim- isn't plants or animals. 
isn't angels. It's actually human beings made in his image. We are given a unique and special place within creation. Uh, Genesis 1.27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This ver- uh, when we look back to verse 14, this wor- word wonderful refers to surpassing, extraordinary, awesome. One commentator points out these, these terms create, set apart, awesome, acts, extraordinary, typically describe the great acts of Yahweh in bringing Israel to birth. But now David, uh, the psalm writer, is applying these terms directly to the birth of an ordinary human being. So the commentator continues, uh, Most Israelites didn't experience the exodus or the deliverance at the Red Sea, but they did experience the wonder of human birth. And maybe this can help them appreciate the wonder of Yahweh's bringing Israel into being. So the point the commentator is making is that God is using one miracle to illustrate another. That the miracle of the creation in the womb, the creation of a new human being in, in her mother's womb, can, can be used to teach Israel about the Exodus, about how God created this nation, created by bringing this nation out of slavery in Egypt, and that this nation was now formed in an extraordinary and powerful way. So God is, in other words, is saying, look at how awesome and mysterious my creation in the womb is. That should teach you something about your own redemption out of Egypt. So in verse 14, David has to praise God. And that resonates with us because when we see works of art, when we see works of beauty, we're drawn in to admire them, to respect them, to say, wow. Da Vinci's Mona Lisa is admired and respected by six million people every year who travel to Paris, France to go look at that most famous painting. But not all people go to admire that painting. In recent times, there's actually been a couple high-profile cases of people who show up to vandalize or trash the Mona Lisa. In 1956, someone doused the lower half of that painting in acid. And later that year, someone threw a rock at the Mona Lisa and chipped off the corner. And in 74, someone spray painted it. And more recently, in 2009, someone angry at the French government threw a mug at the Mona Lisa. Ironically, uh, a mug that had been purchased at the museum gift shop. So if works of art are to be enjoyed, respected, and honored, and not vandalized or trashed, how much more human beings created in the image of God, fashioned by Almighty God. Abortion trashes God's good creation. The culture might think it's okay to trash creation, but it's an act of destructive vandalism. And for, the, for us as the people of God, that kind of vandalism should be unthinkable. But sadly, uh, sadly, the, the problem with abortion isn't just outside the church, it's actually within the church also. 
One study showed that 40% of women who get an abortion are actually churchgoers. Certainly not everyone who attends church is a, is a true born-again follower of Jesus Christ. But it's a sad thing when the church is no different from the world. And this is a problem that Israel faced. God commanded Israel not to be like the pagan nations all around her, not to participate in child sacrifice. But Israel did. In Ezekiel 23, 37-39, we read God's condemnation of Israel. Blood is on their hands. With their idols, they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. But when they had slaughtered their children in sacrifice to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary. So Israel would think that they would go slaughter their children to these pagan gods, do what they needed to there, and then afterwards come into worship Yahweh in his temple and his sanctuary and think, well, that's no big deal. But to God, it was a big deal. And because Israel was no different from the pagan nations all around her, Israel would eventually be judged and then sent into exile. But we... As a church, the people of God, redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to be different. We, we are called to be holy as God himself is holy. So instead of trashing God's creation, we are called to respect and rejoice over God's creation. And that rejoicing that we see in verse 14, it can lead right back to reflection. So we have this sandwich where, where, where David reflects on God's creation, he rejoices in it, and then he reflects again. So in verse 15... David, again, reflecting on the awesome power of God's creation. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This Hebrew word intricately means skillfully, and it describes God as this master builder, as he is forming and crafting each individual human being in their mother's womb. In fact, science, as far as science has come, it has barely scratched the surface of how amazing and how uh, wonderful how indescribable God's power is in taking two cells that are joined together and then multiplying into billions and then trillions of cells into fully formed human beings. Science has barely scratched the surface. And I want us to take another look at this miracle of creation so we can rejoice. We can, we're going to look at this video uh, showing a, an unborn baby at five months after conception. on God's creation and rejoice and then reflect again leads us right to recognize something very important that's been stated earlier. To recognize in verse 16 that life is in God's hands, that it belongs to Him. He is the creator. He is the maker of each individual human being. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Some people might think God is up there like a 
grandfatherly figure, disconnected from everything, the mess that happens down here. He's the kind of guy who winds up the clock and lets it go. But that's not what God is like. He formed each one of us. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. He made us. From the moment of conception onward, he has planned out every single day for every single individual that he has made in his image. There's no accident with God. In his book are written all the days formed for each one of us before there was even one of them. In Jeremiah 1.5 we read, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. This means before Jeremiah was fully formed as a human being, he was known by God. You can't be known as just products of conception or just a part of a human body. You're known because you're a person, a unique individual. Before he was born, the scriptures tell us, Jeremiah was consecrated. He was set apart as a prophet to the nations. This isn't just some potential life. This is an actual life, known and set apart and appointed by God. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you've been born again by the power of God, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You remember Jesus said, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Well, you can't be born again unless you were born the first time, unless you were born physically, right? So just as God was the source of and caused your second birth, your second spiritual birth, God was the cause of and the source of your first birth, your physical birth. Your creation in the womb, the fact that you're here, is an expression of God's love and care for you. God's love for you, which began in eternity past with your election and goes on forever and ever with no end, has to be your reality now. If, it, if it's your reality at those endpoints, then it's your reality, everything in between. God is a God for you. He loves you. He knows you. He knows every, every detail about you. So from beginning to end, from start to finish, life is created by, sustained by, and brought to an end by God. God always has and always will be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, from everlasting to everlasting, He is God. So it's no small thing for someone, for an entire civilization, for an entire country to violate and vandalize and destroy what He has made. Abortion is not only wrong, not only a violation of human rights, not only destruction of an image bearer of God, it is actually playing God. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Only God as creator and maker of all things, has the right to kill and make alive. Life belongs to Him. All creation belongs to Him. We have no right to do that. In 2015, there were something like 908,000 abortions in the United States. One million, almost one million people murdered. And since 1973, the year this country legalized abortion, there have been almost 60, and this is just mind-boggling, 60 million lives lost through abortion. 
ten times the number of lives lost in the Holocaust. Ten times. We can wonder, what would lead so many people to make a decision like that? Well, the top two reasons people often give for having an abortion are uh, not ready for a child or can't afford a child. And I certainly want to be, we as a church, want to be sympathetic to, to, to families or to, to a woman in a desperate situation, facing an unplanned pregnancy, who feels like she has no other choice. But violence is never the answer. Violence is never the answer. When, when our society, when this country worships at the altar of comfort and convenience, what is comfortable for me, what is convenient for me, what is right in my own eyes, that's what can happen. Abortion is actually more symptomatic of a, of, of a more basic problem that we're certainly not a Christian nation in the United States. We're a nation of idolatry. When your God is my comfort, my convenience, what is right, what, what feels right for me, what is right in my own eyes, then the nation can justify any kind of evil, even murder. We shouldn't think for a moment that, that God will turn a blind eye to the violence done, to the murder, and to the bloodshed done. This country, tragically and sadly, has, we have blood on our hands. And nothing will be hidden from the side of Almighty God. No act of murder or oppression or injustice goes unnoticed by God. That means one day, every aborted baby will face her murder in the eternal courtroom of justice. One day, every murder that happened in the darkness will be brought to light. One day, every life destroyed by abortion will be vindicated. One day, everyone who trashes God's good creation will be brought to justice. And we can bank on that. We can bank on the fact that God will right every single wrong. But what do we do in the meantime? I mean, you can... I mean, those statistics are just numbing. You can often feel like, well, well, well what can we do? Well, a couple years back when I was at the Holocaust Memorial, this, this quote stuck out at me, and I still remember it to this day. It reads, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. For good men to do nothing. Most people in Germany didn't work for the Gestapo. They weren't operating the concentration camps. But sadly, most people in Germany did look the other way when Jews were arrested, rounded up, put on train cars and sent off the concentration camps. God will not allow us to look the other way when neighbor law obligates us to meet the needs of those in distress. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 say, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart Perceive it. And, and Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So I want to, as we wrap, wrap things up here, to suggest a number of ways for us to get involved, to, to speak up for the unborn, to defend the rights of the poor and needy. First, I know this probably sounds like a no-brainer. Pray. 
pray. Pray that the leaders of our country would choose what is right. Pray that our leaders would bring an end to the oppression and injustice of abortion. Pray that God would awaken the conscience of our nation and the conscience of our leaders. Pray that the laws of this land would change. Second, educate yourself on the issues. As I was preparing this message, I read this book called uh, Why Pro-Life by Randy Alcorn. Uh, it's a brief book. It's only 150 pages, but it's just packed with just really solid information on all of the major issues regarding abortion. I mean, we didn't even talk about issues such as, well, what about rape and what about incest? Well, what about a child who will be disabled? We didn't talk about so many of these complex issues. Read this book so you can be equipped to talk about the issues of abortion and you can be equipped to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. A big thanks for a uh, big thanks to Greg Taylor. He requested actually, uh, I think, like 60 copies of this book from Operation Mobilization. Uh, these these books are free uh, to be given away. There's enough, I believe, for every family to have one. So as you head out uh, this evening, uh, please pick up a copy on the way out. Please take and read and just consider how the Lord would would use you in ending the oppression to the unborn. But there's a couple additional ways that you might want to consider getting involved. If you're able to, Risen Hope Church, we're actually organizing uh, a trip to go to the March for Life in Washington, D.C. in January. Uh, if you're at all interested, please speak to Bob Feldman. Uh, Bob Feldman and our pro-life ministry, they're organizing uh, the trip there. We have a partnership with Amnion Pregnancy Center. And through our partnership, we show that uh, we as a church, we care about life, not just inside the womb, but outside the womb, as we, as we care for the family, both before, during, and after the pregnancy. And if you want to be involved with our partnership with Amnion Pregnancy Center, again, please speak with Bob Feldman. He'll be at the table with the books. Some of us might be called to peaceful protest. There are churches that organize prayer vigils in front of abortion clinics. You might have heard of 40 days of prayer for life. This is something I've actually participated in, and many of you here. And there's some amazing testimonies that as Christians have gathered and prayed and prayed for God to intervene, to save lives, to change hearts, abortion clinics have closed. It's amazing. Some of you might be called to peaceful protest and prayer. I'm going to take a moment now just to address those among us in our church body here who have had an abortion. Okay? Or maybe you've counseled someone to have an abortion. I realize that a sermon like this might have reopened wounds. That you might be feeling the weight of a past decision. That you might be feeling the weight of your guilt and your shame. How, how can we deal with our guilt? What can wash away our sin? The second group I want to address here is uh, those who aren't Christians. And thanks for staying with me. If God is this God who is knows all, who sees all, who is always present. If he sees and knows every one of your thoughts, words, and deeds, and you know that they're not good, what can wash away your guilt? What can wash away your sin? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We violated God's laws and failed to do what is right in his eyes. And because the wages of sin is death, that means our punishment for falling short, for violating his commandments, is punishment separation from God in the place 
of terrifying judgment called hell. If you're in one or both of those categories, God has amazing news for you this evening. Amazing news. This is what we as Christians celebrate over Christmas. God, in love, in compassion, in mercy, entered our broken world as a baby, as a human being. He lived a perfect life, keeping all of God's commandments all the time in all different ways. And then he went to the cross to die for your sins and my sins, to take the penalty, the wrath, the judgment we deserve for breaking his laws. He suffered and died in your place and my place. So whether you've committed an abortion or not, you are in need of God's grace. So, so repent. So turn away from living for yourself. Turn away from living your own past and turn to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. God's word holds out this promise for you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. And if a past abortion haunts you and you want to explore further, how do I experience fully the, the love, the forgiveness, the redemption, the hope found in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amnion Pregnancy Center actually has this course called Surrendering the Secret. Surrendering the Secret uh, is, is offered periodically. If you want to learn more, you can uh, pick up one of the Amnion brochures. Uh, it's really designed for those who are living and carrying that weight, the trauma of a past abortion. And you want to know how can you find wholeness and healing in Jesus Christ. For He came that we, we could have life and have it abundantly. And if you or a friend ever find yourself in a situation of an unplanned pregnancy, uh, please talk to somebody. Uh, Sharon Bolton is a, is a church member here. She's actually gone through training on how to, how to listen, how to talk to someone, just going through uh, a crisis situation, an unplanned pregnancy. And she is someone you can trust. To keep your situation confidential. She is, her role uh, as, as a faithful church member here is not to judge. Her role is not to judge, but simply to listen to you, to help you process, to help you think through what all your options might be. Because many people who uh, end up having abortion, they feel that they're so alone, that they have no other choice, no other option, and they're so desperate. But you don't have to be alone if you're part of this church family. If Sharon's here, if she could just stand for a minute so you can just connect a name with a face. Sharon is back there. Um, use her as a resource. She is eager to, to be a listening ear. In the gospel, God came down to this earth. He died so that we could live. Abortion is the exact opposite of the gospel. In abortion... Someone tells the unwanted child, you die so I can live however I want to. And yet, how great, how awesome, how boundless is the love of Christ. No matter what kind of sin you've committed, even the sin of abortion, it is not beyond the reach of the gospel. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. God has said, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like Wool. If you confess your sins, God's word says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus died to take away the guilt and shame of our sin. He died to give us a, a, a clean slate, a fresh start. The good news of the gospel is that if you come to Jesus by faith, you can stand forgiven. That the burden of your sin, whatever that may be, can be lifted perfectly and completed. Don't think for a moment that if you're carrying around that secret, that guilt of a past abortion, that that is somehow, somehow a worse sin. Oh, don't let Satan deceive you. God's grace is so rich, so high, so wide, so long, so, so amazing that, that you can receive it today. And if you're not a believer, you can, you can come to God by faith. All you need to do is humble yourself. Admit to God that, that you're a sinner, that, that you haven't lived up to His standard of perfection, and that you need a Savior, and that you want to receive Christ, not, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord. You want to turn your life over to Him under new management. If you do that, God will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. Amen.